0: My hope is in the Lord.
1: Hi, I'm John Hemminghouse speaking for the Beacon Hope Broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. Today's message from the life of Christ involves two incidents that have a similar theme. Right after Jesus performed the great miracle commonly called the Feeding of the Five Thousand, Christ urged his disciples to get into a boat and head across the Sea of Galilee towards the town of Bethsaida. However, on that trip, the disciples ran into a major windstorm that blew them out into the lake and into a life-threatening situation. Further, once they finally came to land they were not at their intended destination. So let's follow Jesus and his disciples into a storm that seems to blow them off course and see what we can learn. Good morning. This is Pastor Lane
0: Jones. I wonder if I might be speaking to someone today who you feel like your life has been blown off course and... Um You're in a storm, and and you're wondering if you need to even have a new direction for life. Well, that's actually what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. Uh, We're looking at two different incidents uh, from the life of Christ. The first one is the time when Jesus walked on the storm to meet his disciples, walked on the water of the Sea of Galilee. And then the second one, which is uh, quite a bit smaller, only mentioned in the Gospel of Mark, is what happens to the disciples when they got on shore, in a different spot than actually they had intended to go, and so I'd like to start this morning by reading what I will call a harmonized account of Jesus walking on the water, and uh, the, this account is is found in f- three of the four different gospels: Matthew, Mark, and John all record it. So what I've done is I went back through the three accounts and I uh, almost like if you're looking at an accident scene, you're getting three different witnesses. So you you put all the details uh, that are you that are the same, obviously. And then the ones that are unique, you, you throw them into the account as well. So what I how I did it Matthew's account seemed to be the dominant one. It actually contains uh, one extra section in it about Peter himself walking on the water to Jesus. Those of you may be familiar with the the story. And uh, Mark and John also add some details. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and read that. And uh, This is putting all three gospel accounts together. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Um, let me just stop for just a second there and tell you that what has just happened is the feeding of the 5,000. We dealt with that last week. If you want Look at our podcast on that. You're more than welcome to do that it Says immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida Well, he sent the multitudes away now when evening came his disciples went down to the sea got into the boat and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when the evening came, he was there alone. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Then he saw them straining at the rowing. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, and I'll just interject here, that's about 3 to 6 a.m., somewhere in that neck of the woods, Jesus went to them walking on the sea and would have passed by them. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, for they all saw him, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answering him said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. And so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the privilege of being able to talk to, to these folks about your word. And we pray you'd give me wisdom that I might be clear, that we might understand not only what is going on in these accounts that we'll look at, but also, uh, Father, what important lessons we can learn, uh, especially those who may be in the middle of a storm and may think their life is off course. So we just ask for grace and guidance and for your help, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's talk first about, about the storms. Now, uh, there, there are some questions that I'd like to ask. And the first one is, uh, if, if I'm in a storm, if you're in a storm, you may be asking yourself, why am I in it? And one of the things that can really frustrate us is when we think there's human error involved. And you could kind of argue that for the disciples here. The, the crowd, uh, after Jesus had just fed the 5,000, the disciples were all there at that time and, and uh, helped in that uh, uh, great miracle. But the crowd, as a result of that, was really excited about the possibility of making Jesus king of Israel. And so they actually were talking about doing it by force. And it's interesting that Jesus wants to get his disciples out of there. And we talked about this a little bit last week. It it could be in the fact that he doesn't want them to enter in and and encourage this at all. um, Because they might have been tempted along the same line. But the bottom line is um, that they, that he wanted them to uh, to move on. And so you could say, well, if the crowd hadn't been so uh, ramped up about making Jesus king, maybe this, maybe Jesus wouldn't have had to uh, tell his disciples to get out of there. And so you could argue a little bit for human error. Um, you could also, however, say that the disciples were in the storm more because of of what Christ had told them to do. And that is, he told them to get in the boat. He told them to go across to the other side. So in this particular case, they're in the middle of a storm, and it's really because they have obeyed the Lord. When I think about that, I think about a character in the Bible named Joseph. And uh, Joseph had was in a very dysfunctional family. There were, back in the days of polygamy, uh, he was uh, uh, one of... Twelve brothers. He was the eleventh of the twelve. He and his uh, and his only full blood brother of those of all the other eleven was was younger than he was, and so um, and both of them had the had the both the privilege and in some ways uh, would be used against them of being the sons of their father's favorite wife of the four. And so Joseph's brothers, when they figured out that dad favored uh, Joseph more than the older ten, then there became a great hostility between Joseph and his brothers. And the time came when uh, um, Joseph is older, he's about 17 by now. And uh, his brothers were doing some shady deals. Uh, uh, Actually, they were shepherds, and and they were doing something that wasn't right, that Dad wouldn't have wanted. And Joseph went back, told Dad about that. And you know how some people feel about those, that uh, they call it ratting on somebody. the those that tell the authorities about what's going on. And so uh, the brothers hated Joseph all the more for that. And there came a day when when, uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, says to him, I want you to go and check on your brothers and see how they're doing. And again, probably Joseph is going to be held accountable to be honest about what's going on with his brothers. And so he's, he, doesn't, you know, he doesn't say to his dad, you know, Dad, the, my, the, the brothers don't like me. Um, and these are, these are tough guys. These are guys that had actually been involved in, in some violence before this. And it's like, Dad, I don't think I ought to. He didn't do that. He, he says, all right, I'll go. And as a result of going, now those of you that know the story, Joseph's brothers talked about killing him. Instead, they decided to mercifully sell him into slavery to a group of uh, people that were headed down toward the land of Egypt. And so Joseph becomes a slave. You say you, that's that's a storm. And wouldn't you think you could kind of blame that on human error? Yeah, you know, on saying that you know if my brothers weren't so bitter and if they weren't and if Dad hadn't told me to go. But the bottom line is, is Joseph was obeying the Lord. He was honoring his dad. He was obeying what what his father had told him to do. And the Bible tells us to honor our parents. And so you really could argue that that, uh, Joseph was in a storm, a terrible storm, slavery, uh, because of loyalty to God and to his dad. And so these disciples are in that. And, And actually, if you're in one of those spots where the truth is you've done the right thing, You've been trying to walk with God, and major trouble has come into your life. At least you can hang your hat on this, and that is, I'm in God's will in what I'm doing. But I know that there's some of you, and you're thinking, well, that's not me. To be honest with you, I've been, I'm in a storm, and it's really probably my own making. And, um, and that makes it tougher, doesn't it? It really does. Now, I'll just tell you that God's still ahead of the storm. He knows uh, the fact that you were going to be in it. He knows uh, what caused you to be in it. I'm not saying the answers are always easy. But I will tell you that there's still stuff for you to learn from what is going on here. And so I pray that you'll hang on. But if you're one of those that is in the storm, and honestly, you've been trying to follow the Lord, you've been obeying the Lord's will, and Jesus told them to go to the other side. Um, at least you can hang your hat on the fact. Okay, I'm I'm in the will of God in where I'm at, and I need to trust Him in that uh, situation. Now let's talk about the storm itself. Uh, what do you? What type of things do you do you face in life that that um, that const- constitute a storm? Well, first of all, it, it often involves a sudden onslaught. It, it it comes on you suddenly, and as it was described here in the account, it says, "Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing." And it's interesting, uh, I don't have time to really develop it. When I preach this at our church, I could show a map of the Sea of Galilee. But the disciples were not trying to go like all the way across. Don't think of going from, say, the east side to the west side. They were going more of a northeast angle. And it's dark, and so there, it seems from, from, when you put all the text together, that they actually were wondering if Jesus might actually uh, want to get on board with them, so it seems like they were hanging toward the shore. That also would have been a very good idea, because it was dark, and the Sea of Galilee was known for storms coming upon this body of water very quickly out of the, out of the mountains that surround the sea. It's more really like a lake, really, also called the Lake of Gennesaret. And the mountains are quite tall around it. So there were frequently times when it stills that way, I'm sure, that storms can come on um, really almost out of nowhere. So there seems to be a couple good reasons why the disciples would try to stay near shore. One is in case Jesus, after having dismissed the crowd, might be walking around the outside of the lake. And then the second reason, obviously, is to keep from being out too far into the water in case a storm comes up. But What the the scripture describes is that the wind was contrary, and those disciples get blown out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and they're struggling. And so this sudden onslaught—they they really couldn't keep the storm from from getting uh, worse. They 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 were caught in it. And then there's this also this sense of separation from Christ. It says, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. And you can understand, if you're one of the disciples, and this storm is kicking up, and you're getting blown farther and farther out into the middle, exactly where you don't want to be, uh, because you'd like to be close enough to shore that you could pull it in, and as that's happening, you, wouldn't you, if I, I know I'd feel this way, and that is, where is Jesus? Boy, wouldn't it be great if we could just have Jesus on board here? He would know what to do, or He'd have the power to help us. Often when we're in a storm, it seems like God is not around. And if you feel that way at times, even when you're trying to walk with the Lord, you're not alone. Psalm, 1, Psalm 10 in verse 1. The psalmist says this, Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? So that's how sometimes we feel. It's like, you know, it's in those times of trouble where I really need you, Lord, and it seems like you're not there. Well, you're not the first person to think that, and I'm glad it's recorded in the scriptures so that we can understand other people felt the same way. Well, where was Jesus? Well, according to the Scripture, he was praying. And the disciples, they're struggling and this is a pretty wearisome struggle. John says they had rode about three or four miles. I think that may be longer than the trip was, was in totality supposed to take. But again, because they're getting pushed farther and farther out. And uh, and, and can I also say this? It, when I calculated... Roughly the time they'd had to leave because it was right around, seemed to be right around sunset. From sunset to, to say 3 to 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm I'm taking the earlier time, 3 o'clock, we're looking at being out on the Sea of Galilee struggling against this windstorm for maybe six and a half hours. Can you imagine? That's a long time to be struggling and trying to uh, keep that ship uh, uh, above waterline. And so it's a wearisome struggle for these guys. And I think that's one of the things that makes the storms of life more difficult is when when a couple things happen. One is that it keeps going. Uh, when you lose a loved one and and you have the funeral, you kind of get through that. the the family and the friends they come around you and they and they minister to you, but then they go home. And it's not over for you. You're going to live with that loss. and and the and the reality of that, as that begins to set in, they see the the wearisomeness of that storm. and and also it can not only be the the uh, the length of it, but the very much the the difficulty and, and understanding a loss better as you move forward and how difficult that can be. and 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 thinking about the fact that it does for me, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I think that can be very discouraging for people. This is not only a wearisome struggle, but it's a dangerous struggle. Matthew, who along with John was on board, wrote, "...the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary." Now, I wonder if, if the Satan wasn't trying to do something here. I don't know. But I just know this. These, these men, we know at least four of them are, are active fishermen. That was their occupation. And they're working hard, and this is a very serious situation. So we see this sudden onslaught of the storm. We also see this sense of separation from Christ. Where's Jesus? Well, he's praying. But the disciples, they're struggling. But it's interesting, too, that Jesus was noticing. Jesus saw them. And in Mark's account, he tells us that he saw them. And he sees you, too. I remember watching a, a basketball game from Damascus Christian Academy years ago, and um, Nick Barner was the coach on that a team at the time. And it was a close game. We'd gone to a game it was down Wilkesbury Way. They were playing a Christian school down there, and it was close. And uh, this Nick's best player was going up for a shot right near the basket, and probably got fouled. But anyway, the shot doesn't go in. And then there's no no foul call, and the ball goes out of bounds. And make matters worse, it's considered out on uh, the Damascus player. So uh, the ball's going to be going the other way. And I remember the young fellow, it's good athlete, turns around, and you can just see the frustration on his face as as he's convinced, hey, I was fouled. That's why the shot doesn't go in. And then the ball goes out of bounds, and you called out on us. And you can just see the frustration as he turned around. He looked over at Coach Barna. And it was a rather interesting exchange between the two of them. Nick just shook his head up and down like, I saw it. I understand. And you know what? The young fella, that was good enough. He realized, hey, coach saw what really went on there. Not going to change it anyway. And he went back and he started playing all the harder. You know, when we realize, and I've been through situations like this, where you have a relationship with somebody, a friend, And it seems like there's something that comes into that relationship. It's a misunderstanding. And every time you try to touch that and try to fix it, it just blows up all the more. And I've had that happen where, honestly, I was willing to apologize. I was willing to do whatever I could to make the situation right. And it just wasn't going to happen. I mean, they just were going to believe ill of me. And there's times when I've just had to look up to the Lord and say, you know, God, you know. I, I know you see it, you see my heart, you see that I want to be right with this individual, um, there's nothing that I can do to fix it. And and that's really, I found great peace in that, realizing that, although nobody else may uh, understand this, uh, Jesus does, and I can be good with that. So what's this like in a storm? Well, you have this sudden onslaught of this storm. They got blown out in the middle of the sea, they didn't want that to happen. You can also see the se- sense of separation from Christ. It's like, where is Jesus in this thing? Uh, you know, we're, we were uh, wanting him with us right now. They're, that's why I think they were hanging near the shore, one of the reasons. And then this overwhelming fear that often comes with a storm. Uh, again, it's the fourth watch of the night, and Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. And interesting enough, it says he would have passed them by. Now, I don't really understand that. But it says, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, for they all saw him, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. And I get that. I Again, I've never been in a, a situation where I really was convinced I was going to die. But I can understand that these guys might be thinking, This must be some death angel or whatever. And this is it. And uh, so... It would be a very difficult situation to be in, uh, very terrifying. So what is Jesus doing in my storm? Well, we saw that he was praying. We also saw that he saw his disciples. But what was he doing out there on the water? Well, it's pretty obvious that he was above the troubled waters. Scripture goes on to say that immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. Would you be a little irritated at Christ for scaring you? I don't think so. I think I'd be, pre- I'd be so happy that he was there that I wouldn't worry about the fact that I just got a little bit uh, over the top um, seeing him coming. Uh, it was rather interesting. Just the other day, I, was, uh, I had a short bout with the COVID. Not a very serious case, thank the Lord. But anyway, I, I let all my kids know, and, and um, so uh, my, m- my daughter, who's, she's counseling at a camp right now, and, and it's kind of hard to get a hold of her, so uh, I had called, and of course she can't answer. So I left her a, a, a fake message, you know, on her phone, claiming that uh, I had three hours to live, and and I, I thought it was uh, pretty obvious that I was just joking. But anyway, she's in a car. Uh, it was uh, the camp week was done, and when when she finally uh, saw the message, and and so with the noise of the people around, uh, she couldn't really tell I was. I was uh, uh, joking, so she calls me up rather concerned that her dad was in bad shape. Well, she wasn't too happy about being scared on that. I thought it was pretty funny myself. But, but the reality is, is that uh, Jesus isn't uh, just uh, trying to scare us in the storm. He's coming to help us. And um, it's rather interesting, too. That he's over the storm himself, isn't he? He's, and he's coming. He's there. He's, he's encouraging his disciples. Be of good cheer. Uh, that actually is uh, taken from one Greek word, that idea of be of good cheer. And then he says, don't be afraid. Take courage. So when the Lord is near, our response to life's storms needs to be actually good cheer. We can trust the Lord through this thing. God is with us. Do not be afraid. Take courage. Say, well, I don't know that Jesus is near me. Well, if, it, it would depend on if you know Christ as Savior. Because when we know Christ as Savior, we have this promise. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's why we are in a better spot. And Jesus said we would be. When he left and he sent the Holy Spirit, because we now have the Holy Spirit always within the heart of the believer. So, we never have to question, is God with me in this storm? The answer is absolutely yes. And when God is with us, we can be of good cheer. We do not need to be afraid, and we can take courage. Now, again, it doesn't mean everything's going to happen the way I want it to happen. But it does mean this I can trust God. Now, if you don't know Christ as Savior, you don't have that promise. And that's going to be your biggest need. You're going to need to know what it's like to have Jesus Christ in your life. And let me say this, that that's a choice you're going to have to think about. And, and I pray you'll make the right choice, but it is not just merely, well, okay, I'll, I'll let God in and then I'm going to do whatever I want to do. It is a choice of surrender. If you want Jesus Christ to be in your life, you need to, you need to understand that He has the right to tell you what to do. You need to repent of your sin. You need to turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. And let him come in and cleanse your life and and change you. So Jesus is is encouraging these men. They are his disciples. They are following his will. And so he can tell them, be of good cheer. Do not be afraid. Take courage. What's Jesus doing? He's he's over the storm himself. He also is empowering people of faith to overcome the storm as well. And it's rather interesting. Peter is a different breed. He really is. Matthew's account talks about this. It says, And Peter, answering him, said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he's the only one of the twelve that does it. And I could tell you, I would be with the other eleven. I really would. I'd be hanging on the side of the boat, or I'd be bailing, or trying to hang on to an oar or something. I don't think I would do what Peter did. But Peter... That's just his, his character, man. He, he wants to step out, and he wants to do the same thing that Jesus is doing. So Jesus said, come. And when Peter had come out of the, from down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him, and said to him, "Oh,
1: you of little faith, why did you doubt? If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. Now again, Jesus is teaching Peter. He's stretching
0: his faith. He's saying, Peter, you did well, but you know what? You didn't really have a lot of faith there. You should have kept trusting. But isn't it, I'll tell you what, I'm not in a spot to criticize Peter. I wouldn't have been out on the water in the first place. Peter wanted to do what Jesus was doing. He Jesus gave him permission to take... This step of faith, and Peter was enabled to imitate Christ for those few steps. Peter's faith, however, wavered, didn't it? Now, I don't blame him. Uh, I can see how that would happen. And Jesus delivered and challenged Peter then to greater faith. Now, you, you learned to trust me, Peter. You have a little faith here, but why'd you doubt? Why did you start worried about the wind and the waves? And many people have pointed out, I think it's inaccurate, it's a good thing to say. And that is that Peter... His faith is keeping him up as long as he has his eyes on Jesus. When he begins to look at the waves and listen to the wind around him, that's when he starts to doubt and he starts to sink. And I would say this, too. I've often thought in recent years that the Christian life is, alike, is a lot like a walk on the water. I don't think we realize. the And if you're not saved here, maybe you've had a number of Christian people in your life and you've seen them fail you. You've seen Christians um, who have have not lived up to the Christian faith. Let me say a couple things about that. First of all, not everybody that calls himself a Christian is one. And it doesn't matter how long or how uh, loud they may say they are, um, the ultimate proof is, is in our life and in in the fruit of our lives. So you, you can't always say that everybody that's claiming to be one is one. But a second thing to keep in mind is that when a person accepts Christ as Savior, they still have a sin nature. They still have the old desires to do evil. We have the Holy Spirit within us to empower us. But it is only when we let God's presence and His Spirit dominate our lives that we really have true victory over the flesh, over the old sinful life. And so it is It is like a walk on the water. When we keep our eyes on the Lord, then we're going to be faithful to Him And we're going to be victorious. But boy, we get our eyes on things around us. uh, We begin to doubt. We begin to get in trouble and get away from the Lord. Christ was there, again, to pick his disciple up. But that's just the reality that, that if we get our eyes off Christ, it's pretty easy to start sinking. Now, it's also interesting what Jesus is doing. He's not only uh, standing over, walking over the storm himself. He's not only empowering people of faith to overcome the storm as well, but he's delivering people of lesser faith. And that is those guys on the, uh, staying in the boat there. It says, that then they willingly received him into the boat. And when, when they got into the boat, that would be Peter and, and, uh, and Jesus, the wind ceased, and immediately the boat was at land where they were going. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So even those guys of lesser faith than Peter that didn't get out, um, you know, they still are re- re- reunited with the Lord. Uh, there's an end of the storm for them too. Completion of the trip, they ended up, by the way, in a different place than they intended. And there's also the exaltation of Christ, that they, they all are involved in, in exalting the Lord and coming to a greater understanding of who Christ truly is. So what have we seen in this first incident that we wanted to look at, the walking of Jesus on the water, um, the, the life of a believer in the storm? Well, there are a lot of selfish motivations underneath even godly and good-sounding choices. So the people that were trying to clamor for Jesus being king, actually, unfortunately, they were doing it for selfish reasons. Very similar to what we sometimes do today as Christians when we say, well, I just want the Lord to come. And I challenge my people with that question, well, why do you want Christ to come? And it was kind of interesting what the common answers seemed to be. A lot of them were things like, well, I don't want to die. I get that. Uh, how about, I want to get out of this ungodly world. Or, I think persecution's coming. I don't want to go through that. Or, I want to see my loved ones again. Or You know, I, what, what often I think we don't think about is that uh, there's less people that will be lost forever. I think that we need to be thinking about the issue of of our Lord's return in light of a great movement of God before that happens. And uh, my, I also challenged them on this. Well, why would you not want Christ to come right now? Well, maybe you're not ready to meet God. Or you maybe have loved ones who are not ready to meet God and would be left behind. Or maybe there's something that you want to do. That would be of less importance, by the way. Or maybe you're enjoying the world too much. Or maybe you um, are looking, again, for a worldwide in-gathering before our Lord's return. I think that's maybe a little bit better motivation if there was going to be one. Well, we've seen that there's a lot of um, uh, selfish motives. We also see from what we've looked at so far that it's easy to conflate God's will with my will. And, you know, they're going to force Jesus to be king. Well, what's the sense of that? If Jesus really is Messiah, doesn't he know best? Uh, but we sometimes conflate our will with God's will. Also, impatience is a sign that your will is, is the real goal and not God's will. And be careful about that. Uh, you may be in a storm and your your will is to get out of it and get out of it now. And so uh, you're angry with God if he doesn't want, it, doesn't want to do it your way. And let me just say that God is, is not intimidated by our desires. He really isn't. And so we have to be careful because if I'm impatient with God, that means I'm really thinking my will is better than his. Uh, we also see from this that obedience to Christ can lead you into trouble. Now, let me say that again. Obedience to Christ can lead you into trouble. These disciples obeyed the Lord, and that's why they were in the storm. And so, we also see that several elements of a scary and dangerous storm would include a sudden arrival, its severity, its length, and your apparent separation from God. That's what really, I think, scares the believer more than anything. It's like, well, where is God in all of this? The realities of the storm, they're they're absolutely real. They are dangerous, and they are scary. It's, it's, it's truth. And so you're, you may be going through cancer, or, or your loved one has cancer. Can I guarantee what's going to happen? Can you guarantee? No, you can't. We, we don't know what God's going to do in situations like that. That's the reality. Now, what are the benefits? Why does God allow us, why, and why did Christ send them into a storm? Because he did. Well, there's a chance to grow your faith. That certainly happened as a result of this storm that Jesus sent them into. There's also a chance to exercise your faith. Peter is a good example of that. As he says, Lord, if you can do it, would you let me do it? There's also a chance to see the Lord in a new light. His presence and his power and his person, all of those come out of this account with Jesus and his disciples. And the lessons learned in a storm are often never forgotten. I remember when my wife got cancer, and just that that lesson that the Lord had to teach me about trusting Him. When night would come, and I'd lay down beside her, and all the questions start running through your mind. And the lesson that the Lord taught me to just kind of crawl up into God's lap in my heart and mind, and give that burden to Him, and let Him bear it for the night so I could go to sleep... That, that's a lesson that, that sticks with me. It's a lesson that came out of a storm. There's also, uh, all storms for the believer will eventually end. And that is a great blessing, that when you know Christ as Savior, we know that the best is yet to come. That we have to look forward to heaven, but if you don't know Christ as Savior, I, I can tell you that this is the best you're going to have it. And the worst is coming for you. God's wrath is coming for you. You need to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. Because hell is real. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. Why? Because he wanted to warn people. He didn't want them going there. So we've looked at this storm. But now let's talk about the landing, or what we would look at as being off course. Jesus said that he wanted them to go to Bethsaida. But that's not what happens. So we've got to turn to the Gospel of Mark at this point. This is the only Gospel that records what happens next, because it's interesting that I, I believe it was John that had said at the end of his account on Jesus walking on the water that as soon as Jesus got into the boat, immediately they were at land. So where were they? John chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter six, starting with verse fifty-three. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. Now, that's not the same area that Jesus had told his disciples to go. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. So, again, Jesus had told them to go to Bethsaida. That was back in Mark 6 and verse 30, 45. The disciples actually, that, the night when they got into the boat, headed toward Capernaum. Capernaum wasn't as far as Bethsaida. Maybe it was a, a little bigger city. That's what I'm kind of picturing and maybe closer to the shore. So they kind of set their boat toward that, those lights maybe. But um, they ended up. In a different spot completely from those two. But they ended up obviously where God wanted them, because the Bible says that as soon as they got in Jesus got into the boat with Peter, they were immediately at land. So God put them where he wanted them. They landed exactly, although it was different than they were anticipated, and different than where they were headed. Jesus is going to still take them up toward Capernaum in that direction. But where they landed was what would have appeared to them to be off course. It reminds me of the, um, the pilgrims who were coming over to this country back in 1620 uh, and landed up at what we now call Plymouth Rock. Uh, they landed off course. They were supposed to be settling in the English colony of Virginia. And it's rather interesting that uh, because they were blown off course by a major storm, and the storm was so severe that it broke the mast on the Mayflower. There were thoughts that they might have to turn back. But again, as God would have it, they had a screw. And one of the guys in our, my church said the screw was actually, I believe, for a printing press, something along that line. But they were able to use that to help prop the mast back up and reinforce it. And so they were able to continue on and actually made it. Um, off course, not in Virginia, but up beyond that territory in what we now call New England in, in Massachusetts area of uh, Cape Cod. Now, they get up there, and uh, they realize that they're out of English jurisdiction, out of, out of the, the place that the charter that they had come with was uh, um, active for. And so there were some on the ship. You need to understand that they're not all uh, Separatists, uh, believing Christians. Uh, there was a, a minority, I think, of actually, uh, that were in that uh, particular group. There were other Church of England people. There were other individuals that were coming over to the New World for whatever reason. And so there were some of them that were actually talking about the fact that, hey, we're not under uh, English jurisdiction where we're at. We can do what we want to. And so there was some talk about anarchy, just kind of going off and doing our own thing. And so they got the, uh, the men of the ship together and they decided that that's not a good idea, that they needed some form of a government and they formed what was called the Mayflower Compact. It's one of the most significant documents actually ever written. As they established Representative government in uh, this new colony, and the, what they called the northern parts of Virginia, but actually it was outside of the of the charter area. It's rather interesting that when you are blown off course, and now you're on a you're in a different location than you had planned to be in life, direction is not always clear, is it? It's like, well, what do I do from here? A good example of that is Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God told Abraham to leave his country, his kindred, his father's house, to go to a land that God would show him. And it's kind of interesting that God didn't tell him. According to Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8, God didn't even tell him where he was going to end up landing. So can you imagine Abraham going home and telling his wife Sarah? Now we're gonna have to move. We have to leave all of our family behind. We got to leave our, our, our everything we know behind. Well, Sarah says, well, where are we going? I, I don't know. God didn't tell me where we're going to end up staying. He just said, move on. Move out of here. And God bless Sarah. She was able to do that. She followed him. Going back to, uh, to Joseph. You know, how does, how does he handle this whole thing of being sold into slavery? Psalm 105, verses 16 to 19 tell us that God actually was in that whole thing. Not that God was encouraging the brothers to sell him into slavery, but God was ahead of what they were doing. God had a plan for what would happen to Joseph. And he's, he, he's, um, it talks about his, uh, uh, being, him being in irons, that they, they actually hurt him. Joseph is in a spot where what, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to handle being sold into slavery? Direction isn't always clear. But I will say this, direction is when you're in the storm and you're blown off course. Direction is incremental. Now what I mean by that is there is something in front of you that you need to do. God, what makes the storm so confusing Confusing is you can't see the big picture. You you don't understand where this whole thing is going to end, where God's taking you. But if you know that God's with you in the storm, you you can just, in your heart and mind, divorce yourself of understanding the big picture, saying, Lord, okay, I may not understand where this is headed. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to do the next thing that I'm supposed to do that's obvious right in front of me. And you will find there will be something obvious in front of you when you're supposed to move. Let me go back and talk about the Mayflower Compact again. That's exactly what happened. The men had an obvious thing in front of them, and that is this. Either we're going to have anarchy or we're going to have to come up with a form of government. And so as they prayed and as they thought about it, they came up with a very good solution. What about Joseph? Well, it's, the, the obvious thing in front of him is he's sold into slavery. Well, I better be a good slave. I better work hard. I better use my talents. As a result of that Joseph is exalted. God uh, lets him become the 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 slave of of, uh, of his master Potiphar that ends up controlling all of Potiphar's uh, stuff, all of and he's a wealthy man. Controls all of his all of his things. The Bible says that Potiphar doesn't even know what he has except for what's in front of him because he trusts Joseph that much. But what did happen behind Potiphar's back is Potiphar's wife begins to to tempt Joseph to commit adultery with her. He's a good-looking young man. He's obviously very intelligent. And Potiphar's wife begins to tempt him to get into an illicit relationship with her. Now, what's the choice in front of Joseph at this point? Does he see where this whole thing is going? No, he does not. But he's got a choice, and that is, do I commit adultery, which would be a great sin against God and against my master, who's been so good to me, or do I say no? And with that choice in front of him, it's an incremental choice. It's an obvious choice. Joseph makes the right choice, and he says no to Potiphar's wife. Now, what results from that? Well, he goes, as she lies about him, and, and he's thrown into prison now. Okay, so what's the choice right in front of Joseph? Well, be the best prisoner you can be. And so he does. He's a great prisoner. And because of that, he's exalted in the prison, given uh, rights that the other guys don't have. He's actually put in charge of administrating the prison. And uh, soon you have a couple people that come in there that are from the king's court. Both of them have a dream. Joseph has experience in his background in interpreting dreams. Because he's got access to them, because of him being a good prisoner, doing the next thing in front of him, Now he has a chance to interpret their dreams, and God uses that to get him out. Get him out of prison, not only that, make him prime minister of Egypt. And what does he put him in to do? Doing administrative things. And what's he been doing all of his slave life? Even his prison life, he's been administrating. And so now the big picture begins to come to pass. Joseph couldn't see the big picture for a long time. I thought about that. Um, I thought about even in my own life, there was... A time when I didn't know the, the next step. And I, again, many of us are in that spot. We don't see the big picture. We don't know where God's going to take us. After graduating from college in the fall of 1985, there was a decision in front of me. And that was, I had an opportunity to teach in a very small Christian school. I'm single at the time. Also had a chance to fill in and, and be a kind of a co-pastor with my brother in a very small church in Mount Cobb. And so on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, I began to fill in there, began to uh, teach in this very small Christian school. I was teaching math and science, a handful of students, and um, learned a lot. God allowed me to be a, uh, have another part-time job of being a janitor for the church and school, kind of help make uh, ends meet. And these uh, three jobs of of preaching at a little church and being a janitor and being a teacher all combined, uh, and and I didn't get a lot of money for any of them, but um, I kept my head above water and was gaining in experience. Uh, Now, again, if you'd asked me during those 11 years, what's the big picture, Lane? Uh, I would have said, I don't think I'm I'm where I'm supposed to end up. I think I'm supposed to be a, a pastor somewhere, but I don't see how it's happening right now. And, um, but I would have also told you that I believe I was doing God's will. I was following His will. Did I understand the big picture? No. I was, my life wasn't taking exactly the course I was thinking it was going to take. If you'd asked me that maybe five to ten years earlier. But over those 11 years, I began to develop my teaching skills, and particularly math and science, teaching skills also from an adult Bible study that I got involved in, and uh, actually was thrust upon me, and so I began to lead that. Uh, I founded a basketball program at the little school that I was at. The kids needed some help there, began any experience in coaching there, Uh, began envisioning and encouraging um, in our little church that the building of a gymnasium that would be helpful in our ministry. I felt like with the Bible study group, with the, uh, with the school, uh, which materialized in a big hurry. Um, amazing how that thing came together. A number of other things that I can look back on now, and, and and God not only gave me experience back then, but then as I became a pastor up in this area in 1996, so many of those things that I had experience in, God has used and enabled me to use, utilize in the ministry up here. Now, did I see the big picture? No. No, actually my life was taking a different course than I thought it should. But God, in His graciousness and goodness, was leading and so, though you may be in a storm and you may feel like your life is off course, if you know Christ as Savior, you know He's with you. And He is orchestrating things in ways you can't figure out. So when we come now to Mark chapter 6, verse 54, we see now there's a new course. Different than what the disciples were anticipating. It says, When they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. They recognized Jesus and ran through the whole surrounding region and began to carry out on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. So the disciples and Jesus are now moving toward uh, Capernaum, uh, one of the spots that the, that the disciples were angling toward that night before. And, and also probably they get to Bethsaida eventually. But along this new course, they again, they thought they would go there by boat. Now they're going there by foot. They see people recognize Jesus. He had done most of his miracles that are recorded up to this point in his ministry. The vast majority of them were up in the Galilee region. So many, many people knew him up there. And they knew uh, that he could help them. And some of them had obviously experienced it before, others had witnessed it, so now these people begin to run through the little towns as Jesus now is walking his way toward Capernaum. They're they're running through the towns, in there and they're telling people that Jesus of Nazareth is coming through, and now here flock the people that need help. People that they wouldn't have encountered had the boat gone directly to Bethsaida the night before. The new course ended up in new experiences where they could help other people that they probably wouldn't have met if they had gone a different course. So there's all these unexpected opportunities, many people to help. And the effort was made to get people to the place where they could get help. Verse 56 says, Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. This is now the pattern that's going to be going on in Jesus' ministry up in that region. So there's these blessings of this new opportunity to benefit the people and to the pleasure of the Lord because the Lord desires for people to be helped and ministered to. So what do we see about this new course? Well, we see that following God's direction does not always lead to the expected end that you and I think it's going to, you know, we may have it kind of plotted out how things are going to work. Like in my mind, uh, I'm, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to meet my wife there, I'm going to uh, get married shortly after college, I'm going to go off into ministry. Well, that didn't happen. I didn't meet my wife till I was 27 and didn't get married to her till I was 29. We were, we were living on opposite ends of the state of Pennsylvania. So it didn't exactly work the way I thought it was going to work. Following God's direction does not always lead to an expected end. Following God's direction but always leads to God's intended end. God knows what He's doing when He allows your life to be blown in a different way than you thought it was going to be. Following God's direction can also lead to long-term vision. It's, it's, it's a lot easier... To, to eventually turn your back around and look back and say, oh, now I see why I went through that experience and that experience because of, of now what I'm experiencing now. It's, and, and sometimes God then kind of breaks the fog and lets you see the long-term vision. When Joseph is finally brought out of prison and put in front of Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to make you prime minister over all the land of Egypt. Now he begins to see It wasn't all done yet, but he begins to see that God has been orchestrating the whole thing all along. You also see that following God's direction often leads down unexpected paths. But those paths often involve small steps, like Joseph just doing the next thing in front of him. He wasn't given long-term direction until very, until very late in that whole scenario going on. His life looked like it was blown way off course, but taking those small steps of fearing God, of being a great slave, of refusing sexual temptation, of being a great prisoner, of not hanging his head and, and just quitting on God. Those kind of obvious decisions that are right in front of you are the kind of decisions you're going to need to make as you're, as you're seeking now for that new course in life. God, what do you want me to do? We also see that following God's direction involves faith, especially when you're blown off course. Okay, Especially when it's not turning out the way you thought. You've got to keep trusting that God is, is in this thing, that God is still with me. It doesn't matter how I feel, that if I've accepted Christ, I truly know Him as Savior. And again, that's the big key. But if you know Christ as Savior, you've got to trust that, that He's in this thing, and He's going to lead you if you'll just follow Him. We also see that following God's direction leads to good ends. You often are better prepared for the future. Others you would not have encountered are now helped. And God is glorified in the whole process. Now let me go back to Joseph. What if Joseph had just said, well, I can't see any good that's coming out of this thing. Here I resisted temptation from Potiphar's wife. I got thrown into prison for it. I, I was already thrown into slavery for obeying my dad. I'm done on God. What if Joseph had done that? Well, if he, if he quit before he became a great slave, he wouldn't have had a chance very possibly to interpret those dreams, would he? No, you've got to keep taking that next step. That next step. And I'll tell you that failing to follow God's direction is pretty scary. Many times we think, well, I know better. Disciples could have said that. Well, Lord, we shouldn't go out in the sea this late at night. And yes, they did get into a storm because they obeyed the Lord, but God had a purpose in that storm. And, and again, sometimes it means you get blown off course of what you thought you should do. But I'll tell you this, better to get blown off of course because of following God than get blown off course because you followed your own direction. And so what do you do? What do you do when you're facing unnecessary circumstances because, quite honestly, you blew yourself off course? You know, the team that goes to the party against the parents' wishes... And then all of a sudden she gets into some very dangerous or ungodly situation that she could have avoided if she simply had done the right thing. What do you do about that? Well, what Proverbs tells us is that if you hide your sins, you're not going to prosper. But if you will confess and forsake, you'll have mercy. Get right with God and get right with God immediately. Make, uh, make him the priority of your life again. And if you've never accepted Christ, do so now, because following God's direction is what makes your life meaningful. When you're following Jesus, the truth is you're never off course, but you're never on course until you know him as Savior. Father, help any who may be listening this uh, morning who do not know Christ. Lord, may they realize that you're the answer. May they come in faith and repentance to you, and turn their lives over to you. And I pray for Christians, Lord, who have been discouraged because they feel like their life is off course. May they realize when you're in their lives that you're always in control and you can help. And so may they trust you even when they don't understand. In Jesus' name,
1: amen. Psalm 89, 8, 9 states, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, you can email us at help at Church.com. Calkins is spelled C-A-L-K-I-N-S. Again, that email address is help at Church.com. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to this podcast is at RadioBold.com slash CalkinsBaptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. lasting life and night. He free.